Welcome to Biota.org Interviews. I'm Tom Barbelay, and today I have the pleasure of talking with Dr. Kenneth Stanley, who's an assistant professor at the University of Central Florida. Dr. Stanley, for people not familiar with your background, can you please give some discussion to it and your interest in the bridge between artificial intelligence and artificial life? Uh, sure. I was originally, I think, interested in artificial intelligence uh, from a really young age. I can remember back at even age eight, really being interested in having my computer be able to have a conversation with me. Um, and for years, that was really my focus, was being able to have a conversation with a computer, natural language processing. Um, but I became, I guess, increasingly disillusioned with that area and just AI in general um, as I realized how monumental the task was to just sort of reverse engineer the brain and try to build it up using my own intuition or analytic skills. And I started to believe more and more that um, the right angle to getting a computer to behave in a way that seems intelligent probably is to get it to emerge in some way or to put the process into motion that would lead to emergence of intelligence or some kind of behavior that looks like the beginning of intelligence. It doesn't have to be human-level intelligence. And that sort of moved me more towards artificial life. Um, so I almost feel like artificial life is a path towards AI uh, in my mind. And um, as I moved towards uh, neural networks and evolutionary computation, those topics have a lot to do with artificial life. So I became increasingly interested in that way. A lot of your work relates to neuroevolution, and that has emergent complexity properties. Can you give some definition to neuroevolution and also discuss the possible emergent complexity that artificial life developers could take on from this? Sure. Um, neuroevolution uh, is just a word for evolving neural networks. So it really just means combining two concepts. Um, both of them are, I guess, artificial life and artificial intelligence concepts. One is genetic algorithms, which means kind of having a survival of the fittest competition inside of a computer. The other one is neural networks or artificial neural networks. And there's an idea that you can combine the two. You can have a survival of the fittest competition among competing neural networks. And those neural networks are sort of like little simulated brains. Um, presumably, if they're competing with each other for survival, we'll have to get smarter and smarter and become kind of more and more intelligent brains. And so there's an idea there, implicit within that, that there's an emergent complexity because these brains are getting smarter. Um, the thing that I became interested in was how the brains or the neural networks can not only become um, better at what they're doing, but actually become more sophisticated or more complex as they're evolving, which is what led to um, ultimately the, the, the technique that I created called NEAT. Can you talk a, a little bit more about NEAT and its possible applications in artificial life? Yeah, um, so NEAT came out of um, a belief that I had originally that when you evolve an artificial neural network, um, that the topology or the connectivity pattern inside of that neural network was really important. I really believed that strongly. Um, and that belief led me to trying to create an algorithm which would actually evolve the topology of the brain or the neural network that goes into a, a little artificial creature or whatever. And so I, what, I what, I, what I ended up coming up with was a way to start out with really simple neural networks or really simple brains that can then, over generations, become more and more complex or actually grow bigger and bigger. And I thought that that was a really appealing um, analogy with natural evolution where presumably our brains um, 
descended from brains that were simpler and those descended from brains that were simpler. So there has been a kind of a complexity explosion over the course of natural evolution. And I tried to formalize that into an algorithm so that you could actually have that happen inside your computer. And now you can imagine, if you put something like that, where these brains can evolve and compete against each other inside of agents that are in a simulation, like an artificial life world, some really interesting things can happen because the agents can not only become um, better at what they're doing, but they can learn new things. Since their brains are expanding, they can become almost creative and come up with entirely new strategies. And what they do can become increasingly complex. Um, so I almost think that that's a necessary ingredient. If you really want to have a kind of a complexity explosion in an artificial world, there's got to be a way to expand the scope of what the agent can do. If, if you just have sort of a fixed-size brain or a fixed-size control algorithm or whatever it is that's controlling your little artificial agents, they're not going to be able to get out of that box. They're going to be limited by the size of the representation that you give them. So by having this kind of open-ended representation that gets bigger and bigger over evolutionary time, you really don't have a limit on the complexity that can be achieved. So I think it fits in well in that sense into the artificial life mold. Now, one of the examples of NEAT on your site is Nero. Can you introduce Nero and uh, discuss the kind of development background to it? It was an idea that I had after um, some early work that I did before NEAT where I was looking at using neuroevolution in games. That was actually the first thing that I ever uh, was interested in neuroevolution was whether it could happen in real time inside of a video game. So in other words, what that means is that evolution, this process of survival of the fittest that you usually think of happening over many years or even eons, is something that happens over minutes, you know, while you're actually playing a game. So you actually see agents that you're interacting with in real time evolving at the same time. And they evolve in response to the way that you treat them. Um, and so that's an idea that's a little bit strange from a genetic algorithms perspective because genetic algorithms usually you kind of turn the experiment on and then go on vacation for a week and come back and see what evolved. Here we're saying it evolves while you're actually playing the game. And this obviously extends to artificial life and just simulations in general because it doesn't have to be a game. It can be any kind of simulated environment that you want to be able to take part in in real time and actually interact with evolving entities. Um, so I had this interest in that kind of work, and um, that's early work that I did. And then I sort of moved into need and the whole complexification and increasing complexity question for several years. Um, but then there was this... Um, conference that just happened to be in town, which was on artificial intelligence and, and uh, games. And uh, we had an opportunity to bring up just ideas for games that have exploited artificial intelligence in new ways. And I said to myself, I really need to think of something now that's actually a good application of NEAT um, that could be run inside of a video game. Uh, so I thought of Nero. And uh, the, really the motivation behind it, I was thinking about all the reasons that, that people don't put these kind of algorithm into video games. Um, and there are good reasons. I mean, the video game industry has good reasons. For example, what if Apple doesn't achieve a, a level of uh, skill that leads to entertainment? Or if the agents just look really stupid and then nobody wants to buy the game? Or the converse of that is if the agents become too smart and so they're able to completely destroy you and you just feel terrible and you don't want to play the game. So there's this issue of what level is evolution going to achieve and being instrumental in the game itself. And I was thinking that there has to be a way to detach that problem from just showcasing evolution. I mean, we need to get rid of the adversarial relationship between the player and the evolving entities. 
So that's why I thought, well, maybe instead of them being your opponent, they can be on your side, and your job can basically be to teach them. Um, and that's where Nero came from. And so Nero is a game in which uh, you as the player kind of take the role of a drill instructor, um, and you have sort of a little combat team of troops. They're robots that learn and evolve in real time, and you put them into scenarios, and those scenarios are scenarios that they have to learn to master in order to eventually be put into a battle against um, opponents that you might find on the Internet who've also trained their troops. So it's, it's not really exactly what the normal artificial life, because you've got these little robot battalions, but it has a lot, of, uh, a lot of relation to artificial life simulations, and I think it could be put into that mold. Uh, you know, kind of if you, if you take it out of that the military context. Now, visualization is critical with contemporary artificial life, and I know you used the torque engine with Nero. Can you give some discussion to that implementation and the benefits and uh, issues that you found using it? Torque uh, was a choice that we made early on. Uh, I should mention that Nero was a was an effort of more than thirty people over two years. Um, it was a huge effort from an academic perspective because it was done at a university. Usually there's not that many people on a team. Um, and so we almost had a kind of a, a software developer um, commercial organization perspective where we had to organize ourselves like a commercial organization to make this huge pro project come, you know, come to fruition. And so we had to decide on an engine early on that we would end up committed to and stuck with. Um, for being able to, to do this kind of a real-time evolutionary simulation. And, uh, I mean, Torque was the most appealing at the time, and I think it was a good choice. And the reason, the main reason probably is because Torque is at a commercial level. I mean, it's not, it doesn't rival uh, something like, um, you know, like a commercial game engine that you see from, uh, from companies that sell their engines for $100,000. But Torque you can get for $100 um, on a research license or an academic license. Uh, so that was really the appealing thing about it was that it was so, so cheap, and yet it was good enough to do so many things that look really good on the screen, maybe not up to you know, the best games that you see, but good enough. And so that, that gave us the tools we needed to produce something that at least had semi-commercial quality. Um, and we were able to thereby you know, showcase this new thing, which was evolution happening in real time while the user interacts with, with it. And I think, uh, I think that a lot of the appeal uh, that Nero has is because of Torque and because it looks good. Uh, you know, if we had used, like, block graphics in 2D, maybe we could have made the same point, but it wouldn't have been as appealing and people wouldn't have accepted it as a legitimate game. Uh, so I think Torque really helped us to, to bring the message across and to get people interested. What more would you like to see with Artificial Life? I think uh, artificial life uh, is uh, going pretty well. I mean, I like I like what I'm seeing now with uh, the, all the simulations and the hobbyists getting involved in artificial life. I think that's exciting. I think there's an opportunity to use uh, um, techniques and ideas that come out of academia inside of um, hobbyist engines. I think that's a new and kind of exciting uh, opportunity which people are starting to exploit, like with NEAT. I know that a lot of people who have been using NEED are, are hobbyists, ultimately, when it comes to this area. Um, and that's possible because if you put kind of a complicated academic project into a package where it's just an API or a programming interface where somebody can just take it and use it without having to know all of the excruciating details, um, it becomes accessible to the masses. I mean, people can just use this thing right out of the box. So I think that's a really good opportunity is to use really sophisticated learning algorithms and evolution algorithms 
inside of kind of hobbyist projects and games that uh, that then can appeal to large masses of people and get even more people interested in artificial life. Um, on another uh, more academic level, I think artificial life could use some more debate. I would like to see more uh, discussion. I think it's interesting that um, in artificial intelligence, there's a huge amount of controversy. It's easy to identify what the controversies are in artificial intelligence. I don't think anybody would argue that there's not controversy in AI. But in artificial life, I feel like there's, mu there's much less uh, kind of a sense of controversy about it. And I think that uh, maybe that's a weakness, that, that uh, we use more discussion and kind of say, throw down the gauntlet a few times and say, here's a hypothesis, um, you know, is it true or is it not true, and take sides. And that way, we can actually make more progress. Um, so I'd be interested in sort of more of that. The controversies in artificial life are far more fundamental to do with its very existence than you see in artificial intelligence, and I agree with you. I think it's something that only is the detriment to artificial life, that artificial life academics and hobbyist developers cannot actually talk about the real issues whilst there's still this ongoing debate about the placement of artificial life. But returning to one of the points that you made, do you think it's possible that hobbyist artificial life developers could give back to academia in some way? Uh, definitely, yeah, absolutely. Um, I've seen, uh, I mean, hobbyists have helped me personally enormously with meat. Um, and I don't know, in some cases, it, you might not say that they're artificial life developers necessarily, but certainly they took my ideas and they put it into, into programs and demonstrations and demos that really showed off how it works in ways that I wouldn't have ever had the time or wherewithal to do myself. And now I can show that to, to people in my classes or just, you know, make that available through the Internet to, to many people. And so they can actually understand intuitively things that before were just purely academic. And, I, you know, a lot of the time the things may look intimidating at first that come out of academia, but, but they're really not that intimidating as these hobbyists have shown. I mean, the, just an average person with their computer can pick up a method like this and put it into something cool and show it off. I think that's completely realistic and it's good for everybody. Uh, and the reason it's possible is because you don't have to know all the n nuances and little details of something in order to just use it in your system. Once it's already been written, it's out there, you can use it. And so it makes it available basically to anybody who, who's a hobbyist or just doing something for fun. And it helps everybody. Any final thoughts for the interview? Um, final thoughts? Um, well, I think uh, something that, I, that I, I just would like to say about what I'm interested in is, I mean, I'm ultimately interested in the question of how really high-level complexity can be achieved through some kind of emergence process, uh, even though that, the word emergent is kind of loaded. But can we set something in motion, um, putting the right ingredients at the beginning so that over time inside of a computer there's some kind of complexity explosion. I, to me, that's what's really interesting in artificial life is the potential for that kind of a dynamic to happen. And we've seen things like that um, to some extent, um, but nothing dramatic, nothing that would really remind you of life on Earth. I mean, there's nothing even close that's happened. So my view is something is missing right now. Um, something is missing from the equation, there's some ingredient missing, and I think that's really the fascinating question is what is missing? Um, because I don't think it can be something that's that complicated or, or that ephemeral. It has to be something, it's something that we're going to figure out sooner or later. Um, because the initial ingredients that were there, say, at the beginning of life, um, they couldn't have been that complicated because they, were, they weren't designed by anything. They were just random events that happened to be um, the way things were at that time. 
So we just need to set up a situation that's somehow analogous to that um, and then set the process in motion. And the question is kind of what level of abstraction do we need? Do we need to simulate chemical soup or can we abstract that away and just go up to um, simulating sort of neurons at that level and just say well, that's where we're going to begin because uh, all the other stuff that happened before really isn't relevant. Um, and I don't think people agree on that, like where we should begin. But if we can pin it down and find the place to begin, I think some really exciting things can evolve from these systems, things that we've never seen before happen in computers. Thank you very much for the opportunity to interview you. Thank you. Thank you for having me.